Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. But first, we're going to finish our summer series that's called The Best of Times, The Worst of Times. As we're working through Acts, we are in sort of an interesting, uh, pivotal time in the first century church, the church in the book of Acts, where the church is growing in number and influence and power. Things are happening. Things are going great. But at the same time, while that's happening, the best of times, they're experiencing fierce opposition, growing opposition, uh, even growing danger and persecution. And so we saw at the beginning of this journey that just Peter and John at the very top were imprisoned and kind of slapped on the wrist and threatened to stop preaching in Jesus' name. But then the next time they got in trouble, there were more of them. And then they were beaten after they were imprisoned. And then the next time we looked at last week, this man named Stephen, who's not really a top, tip-top leader in the church. He's sort of middle management, if you will, in the church. But he's singled out and actually stoned to death. He's killed. So it's gotten more severe imprisonment, beating, and now stoning people to death. And as we'll see this week, that event with Stephen's persecution and martyrdom and death really started a new phase for the church that continued on. And so today we're going to examine what I'm going to call a strange propellant. A strange propellant. We're going to look at only four verses at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 today, but then we'll kind of uh, piece that together with some other supporting scripture from the New Testament. And also, I'm going to quote a lot of uh, old dead guys today um, from a long time ago that will help us to really see, I think, the heart and the point behind the best of times and the worst of times in Acts chapter 8, the strange propellant. So let's start there in Acts 8, and then we will we'll kind of launch off from there. So here's where we're going to start today. Acts 8, starting at verse number 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus everywhere they went. So the strange propellant that we're going to talk about today is persecution. The thing that pushed the church forward was what you would think would be actually a repellent. Like, I'm going to spray this, you know, mosquito stuff all over me to keep them away. You would think that's what persecution would do to the church, but it had the opposite effect and a very powerful and profound effect. So we're going to look at sort of a couple different points of view to flesh this out. Let's look first at the, the one persecuting the church. The main antagonist of this story is a man named Saul, who we've looked at briefly. And as we get into Acts next year, the whole rest of the whole second half of this book is about this man who has a life-changing uh, encounter with Jesus. But that's not quite yet. Right now, he's the main antagonist against the church. So it says here that, and we saw last week, that Saul was at the stoning of Stephen. 
Not only was he at the stoning, he was overseeing it. It even said in Acts chapter 7 that the men who were throwing stones at Stephen, they had to get some more, you know, arm rooms. They took their cloaks off to give him, you know, some more range of motion. And they threw their cloaks at Saul. So we know from other parts of Scripture and from Saul's own account of his life later, he's a very powerful Jewish leader. He's an up-and-coming rising star in this time and place. So Saul has a lot of power and authority here. So what that means is he probably had the authority to call the whole thing off. If something inside of him said, you know what, Stephen hasn't really done what we've accused him of. This is wrong. Guys, we got to stop. They would have stopped. They would have listened to him. But instead, they look to him for approval. He gives it to them and watches as they stone him to death. And then his antagonism of the church goes on and on and on. And what we see really in these four verses is a contrast. So in verse 3, it says that devout men came to bury Stephen's body. They did the customary thing. They did the right thing. They did the, the correct religious cultural thing. But they were devout. But Saul in verse 4 is equally devout in the total opposite way. He's devout in his hatred of the church, in his, in his destruction of the church. He's equally devout, but in the opposite way. There's two things about this that we'll look at for just a minute. It says first that Saul went everywhere. It says he went from house to house. Now contrast that. We looked at a long time ago back in Acts chapter 2. It's, one of, it's part of our core scripture, Acts 2.47. It says that the believers met in the temple, but also in house to house. They met house to house to worship, to take the Lord's Supper together, to have meals together, to fellowship, to grow, to learn. That was, part of, that was their small group ministry, if you will, in the first century, house to house. So Saul seems to know this because he goes from house to house pulling out anyone who claims to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus to arrest them. He goes everywhere, house to house. One of the Greek words that's used here is, is, gives the idea, or in some translations in English even says he ravaged the church. So the, really in the Greek, the, the visual picture it wants to give you is a wild boar tearing apart its prey. This was, the, this was the vision of Saul. This was the goal of Saul, to utterly destroy this new movement that is being called the church, these so-called Christ followers, these Christians. That he, he's out to destroy them and do everything he can. One thing that it was interesting that you don't really see here, but commentators would say based on uh, other contexts culturally, one of the tactics that would be used in a situation like this is when they're pulled out of their homes and then they have to flee, they have to find somewhere else to go. They're displaced from their homes. It's very you, it would be usual in the Roman world to then for Saul or the Jewish officials or even the Roman government to seize the property of these displaced Christians. And so they would uh, get, make themselves have a lot more property and land and stuff because they would force them out of their homes and then take over their property. What's interesting about that, we'll get to more modern day stuff later, but let me make this connection. There was actually a story in the end of 2018, uh, an Iraqi TV station talked about this same thing happening in the modern day, where they, there was a story that there were at least 350 homes in Iraq where Christians had been pulled out or imprisoned or displaced, and then either the government or the group uh, that forced them out then made illegal documents that then had them as the landowners or the homeowners. And so then if the people did try to come back to their home, they can't get it back because either the government or the terrorist organization has the official documents to say, no, this is our land. 
So the same thing that Saul did is nothing new now. It's the same thing that even people against the church do now. We'll get back in a few minutes to more modern day stuff, but that's just one idea of how persecution then and now is still the same. It's still a thing. So again, Saul went everywhere, but here's another distinction that Saul did is he also went after everyone, which is unique. So because what's unique about it is it says he arrested men and women. That's unique. We may not really see that when we just read it on the page, but here's the thing. Women in ancient times, you know, we might look back at that and say, oh, it's terrible. They were mistreated. They weren't equal like they are now. That's true, but in at least the ancient Roman world, they had certain advantages to that as well. One of them was when they were uh, arrested, it wasn't as often for as many crimes as men. There, there was a difference on the books. Men could be arrested for more things than women, and they could be punished more severely. Or less men were punished more severely than women. There were certain legal protections against women in the ancient Roman world. And so even when you read stories about bravery of women, the reason that they're mentioned is because there's so few of them, because the ancient uh, Roman and even Greek mindset was that courage is a male trait. It's not, a, it's not they're, they're, they're so binary in their thinking, which is way off of where we are now, you know, unfortunately. But they would see, you know, these are certain traits that are Manly traits and courage is one of them. And so when a woman shows courage, like what we even read here in Acts chapter 8, it's unusual because it's not expected of women, but yet it had to be used because women are now on the same playing field with men as far as Saul is concerned. I don't care what you identify as. I don't care what your gender is. If you're a Christian, if you identify as that, off to jail with you at best. And so we see Saul was so intent on destroying the church that he ignored every social norm in his utter hatred and destruction of the church. It's a unique thing. We also see here, let's make another connection to Saul. So we talked several weeks ago about Saul's teacher named Gamaliel. In Acts chapter 5, if you remember, the second time the apostles are arrested, they have a meeting with the council. Saul's teacher, Gamaliel, is there. And he speaks up and says, I have advice for you guys. My advice is, leave these people alone. And the reason he said that was, if this movement is not of God, it will fail on its own. We don't have to help it along. But if it is of God, we're going to be fighting against God, and we don't want to do that. So his advice was, leave them alone. Well, his star pupil Saul says, old man, that's the old way. I'm doing a new thing, and so I'm going to destroy these people before they can grow and spread and get this thing really going. So he went against good advice. He went against social norms. He did everything and anything and went everywhere against everyone to try to destroy the church. And so then from this point on, really the church, there's a, a Greek term. It's called the diaspora. And when you read the beginning of Peter's letter, 1 Peter, he's going to describe to the churches scattered throughout, and he lists all these different regions of the area. That's really where they were. They weren't, there wasn't, at the time, and it's mainly in Jerusalem, okay, they have a central location. They still met in the temple and in homes, but it's all mainly geographically based. This event, the stoning of Stephen, and this aftermath now spreads them all over the place. And so they do, that's really sort of, I don't know, it's a church split, but it's kind of for a positive, more positive reason than we have them now. But it's also the inverse, remember in the Old Testament where both kingdoms, north and south of Israel, are exiled? So the north goes to Assyria for decades, the south goes to Babylon. That was God's judgment on them for disobeying him. But here in Acts, we see that they're scattered for a different reason altogether. It's not God's judgment. It's actually fulfilling God's mission for this to happen. 
which that's a totally different sermon that I'm not even going to start to get into, that this terrible negative thing was the strange propellant. That, that is the idea of what we're looking at today. That this thing that they would have seen possibly as a, obviously a negative thing, a bad thing, a dangerous thing, was really the way to propel what God had planned. Back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the key verse of this entire book of Acts. Jesus says, you'll be witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll receive power to be witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, that's where they are, but that's where they've been. But then he says, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is where that kicks off. They would never have gotten to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth if they'd not been persecuted. That's why it's a strange propellant. This awful, negative, dangerous, deadly thing that happened to them actually helped to grow and and grow the church and propel it forward. So that's why this is the best of times and the worst of times all at the same time. This persecution and suffering was, was nothing new, really. I mean, we, God's people, even Old Testament, had always been under some sort of persecution or opposition. I mean, you could go story after story, thing after thing, and actually Hebrews chapter 11 does that. So Hebrews 11 tells these stories of these people of great faith, and it lists, you know, Noah and Abraham and Moses and all these great people from the Hebrew scriptures that had great faith. And it gives at the very end sort of the summary that we'll read in a second. And what it gets at is, you know, in some of these cases, like let's say Daniel. Daniel faced persecution. He was mistreated. He had the law used against him. He was sentenced to death, but God miraculously saved him from the lion's den, right? So sometimes they're saved. They're preserved. They make it out alive. But sometimes they don't. And so at the end of Hebrews 11, let's pick it up here. Hebrews 11:33, sort of the summary of the chapter. And it says, by faith, these people that he's already listed overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others, it goes on to say, were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Here's what I love. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. This persecution was nothing new, and the persecution in Acts 8 is not just a one-time thing. It happened before, and it happened after. And many of the things that we see here listed in Hebrews 11 could be, probably are, talking about some of the apostles in Acts 8 who were martyred, killed for their faith in various types of ways. So let me list these ways for you. Just, just the 12 apostles of Jesus, let me just tell you how their journey ended, and it was not pleasant, okay? Uh, Peter, who we read a lot about in Acts and will continue to, uh, was famously crucified upside down. He was sentenced to crucifixion. The story goes, he requested, I don't want to be killed in the same way as my Lord, so they crucified him upside down. Uh, Andrew, Peter's brother, was crucified in the shape of an X. That's why if you hear about the St. Andrew's cross, uh, even on the flag, like that's why that's that way. He was crucified in the shape of an X. Uh, James, the, the brother of John, was beheaded by King Herod. We'll actually read about that in Acts chapter 12. That comes a little bit later. Um, John uh, was the only of the original 12 uh, not to be killed. Uh, they, attempted, they, they attempted to boil him alive in hot oil. He lived through that. And then they exiled him to an island called Patmos where he has the revelation that we read about at the end of the Bible. Um, so even through that comes 
part of Scripture, even this estranged propellant even for Scripture. Uh, and he died uh, 100 or so years of age. Uh, Philip was in Turkey. He died by hanging. Uh, Nathaniel, uh, there's some debate on some of these. So Nathaniel uh, either stabbed to death or crucified. Uh, Matthew stabbed and speared to death in Ethiopia. Thomas, doubting Thomas, right? He doubted for a while, but then guess what? He was killed, he was speared to death while preaching in India around 70 AD. Thaddeus uh, arrowed to death. Uh, Simon the Zealot was crucified. And then Matthias, who replaces Judas in Acts chapter 1, uh, he was actually stoned and then beheaded. So Hebrews 11, right, it says they were too good for this world. Or another translation says the world was not worthy of them. They were willing to give everything for the gospel, literally everything. They were willing to do that. And even after the original apostles, persecution persisted. This is where we get into the old dead guys for a little bit, okay? We're getting into our new phase here. But even into the end of the first century, into the second century, it continued. Persecution of the church continued on and on. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. So first, we have here Ignatius of Antioch is his name. Um, he's the saint of shadow puppets, as you can see here. I had to break up the seriousness for just a second. I could not pass up that opportunity. He's, the, he's not the saint of shadow puppets. I guess he just likes to throw up the peace sign, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. So Ignatius was a church leader in the early 2nd century, but the, he was martyred in the 120s, 130s. The reason for his arrest is really unknown. There was, again, a lot of debate on why he was arrested, why he was martyred. We don't really know why, but we do know that he had to travel quite a long way from where he was to where he was martyred near Rome. And we know this because as he traveled, he wrote epistles or letters to different churches, kind of like Paul did in his life. They're not inspired scripture, but they do give us some insight into his life a little bit and then also into his mindset mainly. In one of these letters, here's what he writes on his way to his death. Ignatius writes, now is the moment I'm beginning to be a disciple. May nothing seen or unseen begrudge me making my way to Jesus Christ. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mingling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus. I don't think I could have written that, <laughs> okay? Uh, a different mindset that he had. Let, he says, I don't care how I get there, just let me get to Jesus. And in fact, there are other parts of other letters where he's like, hey, the quicker the better. Not because he's afraid of death, not because he's afraid of pain, but because, hey, the sooner I'm out of here, the sooner I'm with Jesus. So let's just get this thing over with. That was his mindset. That was the determination and the devotion that he had, the courage that he had in his life of faith, even though it cost him his life. Around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier, was a man named Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, you might recognize in the book of Revelation, is one of the seven churches that Jesus talks to in his revelation to John. There's quite a bit of evidence, historical evidence, that Polycarp was a disciple of the apostle John. He was sort of his protege, one of his protégés as a very young man. And so then some 60 or 30, 40 years after John dies, Polycarp is now the bishop of Smyrna. But uh, he has broken Roman law because he will not burn incense to Caesar, who claims to be divine. He refuses. He only worships Jesus as Lord. He refuses to bow the knee to Caesar. And so he's accused of this crime. He's convicted of this crime, and his punishment is to be burned at the stake. They give him a chance to recant, 
And at his trial, here's one thing that he says. It's recorded this way. He says, if you think I will swear by the genius of Caesar, then you don't know who I am. Hear me clearly. I am a Christian. He's, then that didn't really help his defense out very well. So he's still sentenced to death uh, by fire. And so they take him to the place they're going to burn him in the square publicly. Uh, they take him there and they tie him up. And as they're tying him up, they give him one final opportunity to recant on his faith in Jesus. One chance to turn everything around. We'll, we'll let you go. We'll free you if you just reverse course. And here's what he says in that moment. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. So they light him on fire. And his final recorded words, as he's burning alive, he says this, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. His final words as he's being burned alive. And we'll get more to the, the theme of those words again in a few minutes, but that's that, on, that persisted. This persecution, this martyrdom of Christians persisted century after century after century. Uh, there's a famous book, you may have heard of it, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, most of that book, like the first Maybe 10, 12 pages are some of these stories. And then the rest of that is mainly like Middle Ages type of stuff. Persecution persisted all throughout history, all throughout time. There's always been an attack against the church. There's always been persecution against the church. And that continues even to this day. Now, we don't see that here as much, and we'll get to that. But let's look at where the rest of the world sort of stands in terms of persecution. So a lot of numbers and stats are throughout you, but just, I just want you to kind of get a general overview of kind of where most of the world is. So according to Open Doors World Watch List, uh, here are the numbers for 2020. Uh, this is known numbers now, so the numbers you can assume are going to be higher than what we have. The year 2020, there were 4,761 Christians killed for their faith. 4,277 others arrested and imprisoned without a trial, held illegally for their faith. Another 1,710 have been abducted, uh, either by governments antagonistic to faith or by other um, groups who are antagonistic to faith. Let's look at a few countries where this is really a, a huge problem. Syria is one of them. Uh, 2000, as of 2011, there were recorded 2.2 million Christians living in Syria. The last count as of about two years ago, there were less than 800,000. So it's been cut by two-thirds, by persecution, by displacement, by threats. That's Syria. Nigeria, uh, a couple of um, Islamic terrorist groups, Fulani and Boko Haram, are the main militant groups in that country. Uh, between the years of 2015 and 2018, those two groups killed over 8,800 Christians that we know of. Uh, and they burned over 1,000 churches to the ground in just that three-year period. India has recently been ramping up and ratcheting up its persecution of Christians in that country. 2021, they finally cracked the top 10 list. Not a good list to be in the top 10 of, okay? Uh, 2021, they, I think they were number eight on the world watch list for the most persecuted places for Christians to live in the world. One of those things comes about because now in, on the books, 
the law is, if anyone's convicted of religious conversion by coercion, okay, and that's a very broad term that the government's going to use there, it comes with a $1,375 fine plus up to 10 years in prison for every count. So let's say uh, an underground church, the pastor is there, he get, you know, you converted five people in your church. Well, you times those numbers by five. That's up to 50 years in prison for that person because they, it was under coercion. It's against the government. China is one of the places where it's, it, it's hard to tell the numbers coming out of China for anything, uh, but here are what we can know from pastors of churches in China, according to the Open Doors World Watch list. They officially allow religious freedom in China, according to their constitution, but it's government-controlled, state-controlled churches that are allowed, and that's, again, a very uh, interesting broad term that they use there. Um, And they're officially a communist country, which is an atheist worldview, and so those don't really go together. Uh, Religious freedom and communism, those don't mix. It's oil and water, and so you can do the math there. Um, But according to some reports of pastors, both of state-approved churches and also underground non-state-approved churches. Here's what's happening that we don't see in the West in China right now. Uh, They're removing as many crosses as they can from any church building in China. They're replacing pictures of Jesus with the President Xi Jinping. They're replacing the Ten Commandments in any place they can find them with parts of speeches of Xi Jinping. Uh, They're requiring the Chinese national flag to be in every church uh, in the nation. Also, they're setting up for known, even state-approved churches, they're setting up surveillance cameras to keep track of, and even in some places, fingerprint checks to know who's going to church, which church, and how often are they going. And then they will also set up surveillance cameras anywhere else. They assume that there might be an unapproved church meeting happening anywhere that they can in China. These things are happening right now. This is not third century. This is not 15th century. This is 21st century in the world happening. Persecution all over the place. But it's also a strange propellant for the church now. Because according to the numbers that we have, there have never been more Christians in India than there currently are. And they're facing persecution like they've never seen. It's ramping up, yet the church is growing. There have never been, according to the numbers that we have, more Christians in China than ever in the history of the world, even though the persecution is ramping up. It's still a strange propellant. Jesus was not kidding when he said, even the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Nothing can stop the church. Jesus made it very clear, and even even the dire straits that countries and churches and groups are in now prove that to be true. Now, for us here in the West, in the 21st century, persecution seems very far away. Uh, We sometimes can't relate to those stories. We're shocked by them. The numbers seem huge. The threat seems great. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. And so a question that we might ask is, well, how, how can people endure that? Like, what kind of attitude must someone have to endure this, to not cave in their faith, to not just go along to get along, to give everything, their, their fortune, their houses, their land, their lives? How, how can they do that? There's a book I read recently. It's called The Coming Christian Persecution by uh, Thomas Williams. And in that book, he talks about the mindset of these people, of, of martyrs. He says this, It would make sense... For persecuted Christians, beaten, imprisoned, ostracized, to feel as if they're doing something very wrong and to want to correct it. But then he says, knowing that persecution has always been part of the plan, we can more easily persevere when people oppose us. 
Martyrs know, these people who are suffering know that Jesus predicted this would happen. As he says, sort of crudely, but truly, it's part of the plan. It's part of the deal. When I signed the dotted line to follow Jesus, I knew this was a possibility, and for some people, a probability. But yet I signed it anyway. That's got to be their mindset. They've got to have that resolve, that sort of steel backbone to say, I'm not going to cave because this is part of the plan. Peter says the same thing in his letter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. And then skip down to verse 16. He says, But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. And this is coming from a man who suffered. This is coming from a man who gave everything, and later on after he wrote this, gave his life. So for Peter, this is not just a theory or a concept. He's not some thinker in an ivory tower telling other people to do what he's not willing to do or has not already done. In fact, we know in Acts chapter 5, he's already had this attitude. Let's look at it really quickly. Acts 5, 41 and 42. After the apostles are arrested for the second time, beaten and released, here's their attitude. Acts 5, 41. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. This is after being falsely imprisoned multiple times, being beaten for their faith, being ostracized for their faith, being threatened for their faith. They rejoiced and were counted worthy to suffer. That is a unique mindset. That is a mindset that maybe most of us, if we go deep down honestly, maybe we don't quite have. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But this was the attitude that the martyrs had. That's why Hebrews 11 says the world was not worthy of them. They were too good for this place. They belonged where they were going ultimately. And they felt blessed that they were worthy to suffer. And it's the same approach that we know that Jesus had. So we mentioned Hebrews 11, these stories of faith, these stories, you know, of perseverance, that some of them made it, some of them didn't, some of them gave a lot, some of them gave everything. But then in Hebrews 12, right off of the heels of that, he says, now you live a life of faith like that. And the first question I would have is, how do you expect me to do that? But in verse 2, Hebrews 12, 2, he tells us, he says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Catch this. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Notice there it says he endured the cross. He endured the torture. He endured the beating. He endured, I mean, being, his back just ripped open. And then he's got to carry a cross down the street, up the hill, and then be crucified on it till he suffocates to death. Jesus was willing to be publicly shamed. The scripture says in the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So it wasn't just that he was humiliated, but he was cursed by his own law in the way that he was crucified. He was crucified openly, publicly, nakedly. He was shamed in every way you can imagine. But it says he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not saying that the cross was joyous for Jesus, okay? He's enduring this for the joy before him. 
The question is, what is that joy that's before him? Oddly enough, that joy is you and me. We are the joy set before him to endure the cross because the cross meant completion of his assignment. The cross meant mission accomplished. The cross meant what I came here to do has been done. Yes, it was brutal. It was agonizing. It was excruciating. It was shameful. Yet the joy before me is those who will believe in me because of what I'm enduring. You are the joy set before Jesus. You are the reason. I am the reason. We are the reason he endured the cross and despised its shame. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel is that he did that for you and for me. He gave everything for us. We are his joy. So as we sort of transition here for a couple minutes, that means if we are his joy, that means that he should be our joy, which means if necessary, we should be willing to suffer whatever shame comes our way as well. Going back to the, Christian, the coming Christian persecution, Thomas Williams says this, this awareness that suffering is part of the plan in turn gives rise to serenity and peace of heart. There is no reason to anguish if we are where we should be doing what we should be doing. It may be difficult, it may be painful, but there is no reason to second guess our choices. Now this is easier to write and to read than it is to do. I will grant you that. I'm not saying this is easy to do, but I'm saying it is the attitude that we, even we, must have to endure whatever may come our way because of our faith. And so here's where I'm going to get into a bit of a challenge as we start to wrap it up here for a few more minutes. I'm not going to try to be mean here, but I'm going to push us a little bit because this whole persecution thing, we just don't understand in the way that most of the world and most of the history of the world have. We have it really good here. So we have to kind of maybe start smaller and go from there. So maybe today our question is not, will I die for Christ, but will I live for him? which is an equally large question. And it's difficult in a different way, but that's where we in the Western 21st century American world have to start. Not, will I make the leap? Oh, I'd die for him. Well, you don't even live for him, right? That's what you might tell some people that you know. Um, And so that's where we're going to challenge ourselves here for just a couple minutes. So there's a famous um, work from the 14th century. It's called The Imitation of Christ. It's written by a German theologian named Thomas Akempis. And in that, he writes this. Here's, here's where the challenge begins. So let's buckle up and get ready to land the plane here. He says this, Jesus has always had many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire consolation, but few who care for trial. He finds many to share his table, but few to take part in his fasting. All desire to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. He goes on to say this, Those on the contrary who love him for his own sake and for any comfort of their own bless him in all trial and anguish of heart as well as in the bliss of consolation. So as we examine this strange propellant both in Acts both in the centuries past and even today, look at those examples. It's a good time to examine ourselves in this moment, in this climate that we're in here for just a minute. Here's a few questions, difficult questions, personal questions, maybe even embarrassing to answer questions, but we need to ask them. So think about these questions. How serious am I about my faith? How committed am I to my faith? How focused am I on my faith 
Or how often do I get distracted with so many other silly things? How, how badly does that little hangnail bug me for weeks, and yet I don't really think about my faith all that often? It doesn't bother me as much that maybe I'm not as committed as I claim to be. How easily do I think that I would fold under real intense pressure? Something to think about. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, right? I'm not saying that you're terrible, right? I'm just saying we all have to ask ourselves these questions in light of what we're looking at in Acts chapter 8. This is what we have to consider. Really what it comes down to is this question, and I think that's what Thomas Akempis is getting at. Do I like the idea of following Jesus, or am I really following Jesus? Those are different. And when it gets to both Thomas Akempis and then a couple hundred years later, another thinker named Thomas Traherne, they kind of get this idea, and I'm really, really dumbing it down here. There's a lot more that they say about this than I can't even understand. But one thing that they get to in both of their writings that you'll notice is they get to this idea of, and he mentioned at the very end here, if I can't even enjoy God in the good times just because he's God, then first of all, I'm not going to enjoy heaven very much either. Because that's what heaven is, enjoying him just for him, being, being blissfully aware of him just because he's there. And then on top of that, to get to what we're talking about more today, if I can't enjoy God just for God in the good times or the okay times, do I really think I can stand for him in the bad times and the dangerous times and the times where the persecution's really coming to our shores and our doors? So, this is a good time to reflect on those things, but let me encourage us maybe as we close with one final verse, and then we'll close in prayer this morning. Romans 14, 8, Paul says this, if we live, it's to honor the Lord, and if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. So for, we get stuck on the death of the martyrs as the thing, but it started before that, the real key to the martyr's death was the martyr's life. That's what put the target on their back in the first place because they wouldn't conform, they wouldn't recant, they wouldn't just fit in with what the government made them do or what society told them to do, what the leadership tried to force them to do. No, their life was the propellant and then their death was sort of the final explosion of propellant after their life is over. It was their life and then their death. Their lives were making a difference, having an impact and put them in the crosshairs. And so the key is, before you can die a death worth dying, you have to live a life worth living. You're not going to get to the death part if the life hasn't led you there. No, let me just say it this way. I wrote it down. I'm going to say it much nicer if I read what I wrote this week, okay? If persecution comes to our shores in our lifetime, and it may, it will not be for good moral people. It will not be for nominal Christians it will not be for everyone who just happens to own a Bible somewhere in their home. It will come for radical, devoted, sincere, world-shaking followers of Jesus. So that's what it comes down to. It comes, persecution comes for the devoted, not the half-hearted. Those are the people probably throwing a few stones along the way too, trying to fit in, trying not to, not to get caught. It's for those who are sold out for their faith. And again, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone here, anyone listening, watching. I don't, I'm not judging your heart. I'm just saying this is what it's going to take. If we're going to ever stand for our faith when things get under pressure, uh, we have to be committed now, building that foundation now, living the way of Jesus now. And so really, if, if my death propels the church forward, 
I pray that when that moment comes, I'll be willing to lay my life down to propel the church. But until then, I want my life to propel the church forward. I want your life to propel the church forward. Don't just wait for the day of death. Look, I made a difference. Well, no, you had all this time. You're waiting for this, but you could have done it here. It's like, let's make every day count. That's what I think this small group series is going to be so helpful. One at a time, one person at a time, one interaction at a time, one day at a time. That's what it's going to take. And so may our, not just our death propel the church, but that's good, but may until then our lives propel the church forward as well. May we live lives of strong, genuine, committed faith and devotion to Jesus that makes that difference every single day. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at these past and present people who suffered, I pray that we've been encouraged and also challenged. As we've seen the suffering of Jesus for us, I pray that we've also been inspired but challenged. And I thank you for the suffering of, of Jesus to start the church, and I thank you for the suffering of those that came after him to propel the church forward. And so our prayer today is that we would, in some way, in some growing way, have that same attitude and approach, to have a bigger picture idea of of what you want us to do rather than just getting caught in the weeds of everyday life. And we can all get there. It's susceptible for all of us to get lost in the minutia of life and forget the bigger picture, forget the real why of what we're doing what we're doing. Help us to not get lost in that, but to see the purpose and plan that you have. And help us to not just be willing to give it all, that's good, but help us to be willing to live it all as well, to make a difference every single day that you give opportunity for us to reach out to someone in need, to just be a listening ear, uh, to be an encourager, uh, to be a good neighbor, uh, to be an exemplary co-worker, an employee, to be the kind of boss that people are attracted to, not because of us, but because we're pointing people to you. May our everyday lives of faith make as big of an impact as the people who give their lives for you. That's our challenge in the here and now. And so, but then as the challenge grows, as the pressure grows, may we then continue to grow in our faith, grow in our determination and resolve and commitment to serve you no matter what. Help us live that kind of strong, vibrant, real, deep life of faith that is genuine and authentic and will stand the test of time. And you can do great things for that. It will propel the church forward as we live that way every single day. And I thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.